Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is Neurostation, a show about the Rust programming language and the people who use it. This is a news episode for Rust 1.35. Before we dive in, Parity is back sponsoring the show because they want to hire you to come work in Rust with them. Parity is advancing the state of the art in decentralized tech, and they're using Rust to do it because they can lean hard on Rust's trifecta of performance, reliability, and productivity. They're building cutting-edge tech in areas like WebAssembly and peer-to-peer networking. Two of their larger projects are Substrate, which is a framework for building blockchains, and Polkadot, a platform leveraging blockchain technologies for scaling and interoperability in decentralized systems. If those projects sound interesting, or working in Rust sounds interesting, check out their jobs at parity.io slash jobs. The first bit of news I want to touch on today, and I'll have a little more to say about this in the next episode as well, is that two weeks ago was the fourth anniversary of Rust hitting 1.0. It's kind of amazing that it's been that long, actually, and an incredible amount has happened along the way. If you go back and look at what Rust 1.0 looked like, the state of the ecosystem, the state of the standard library, even the state of the language itself, it's a pretty amazing amount of change over that period of time. The other thing I wanted to mention before we look at 1.35 were the two-point releases in the 1.34 cycle. 1.34.1 fixed two issues in Clippy. As you may recall from my comments in my discussion of Rust 1.31 and the 2018 edition, Clippy is now an official Rust tool, which means it has the same semantic versioning compatibility guarantees as Rust itself does. Unfortunately, 1.34.0 saw a few bugs make their way into Clippy. Two false positives and one panic when checking macro behaviors. Those are not a huge deal, but the Rust team shipped a fix for it anyway, which I, for one, appreciate. 1.34.2 was a substantially more serious fix, a fix for a security issue. You may recall from my discussion of 1.34.0 that there was a newly stabilized error type ID method. A careful and attentive Rustation, Sean MacArthur, identified that this actually exposed a security hole. The default implementation for this was safe, but it was possible to return the wrong type when you implemented the method yourself manually. And if you did that, you'd have a situation where Rust would treat the item as the wrong type, which can in turn lead to very serious memory unsafety. For example, if the type was actually a U8 and you returned a VEC of U8 instead, in terms of what the type signature was, Rust would think you had a valid vector, and if you started performing operations on that, like calling myvec.push42, well, now you'd be scribbling over memory that didn't actually belong to you. 1.34.2 therefore destabilized the feature entirely, and there is an ongoing discussion about what to do with the feature, since it has existed since 1.0, just on nightly, and it has in fact been unsafe that whole time. This is just the first time somebody caught the unsafety. All right, enough for 1.34. Let's actually dig into what's new in 1.35. This is a fairly small release, which is actually normal for Rust. It's just that the past several months have been jam-packed with the lead-up to the 2018 edition and a number of other major features landing in the immediate aftermath of the 2018 edition. Aftermath sounds way worse than it actually means. I just mean since the 2018 edition landed. 1.35 isn't one of those Big Bang releases in any case, but it is a good one nonetheless. I talked 
back in episode 31 about how you can expose Rust libraries as dynamically linkable C ABI exposing libraries for other languages to use. Rust 1.35 adds a flag to Cargo to make it easier to get some of the nitty-gritty details of building a library like that just right. Rust C dilib link arg. Specifically, this lets you do things like set the version for the shared library you're building or the runtime path for where to find it. This is not a thing you're going to need to do most of the time, but if you're deep in the kinds of weeds we were talking about and you need to build a dynamic library on Linux or Mac OS, you may find yourself happy that this exists. There are also a few new targets to build against in 1.35. Most interestingly to me, a Wasm32 unknown WASI target. WASI, W-A-S-I, is the recently proposed and rapidly developing WebAssembly system interface. WASI is one of several recently announced pieces of the WebAssembly story, which begin to capitalize on the promise for WebAssembly to be not just a way of targeting browsers for high-performance code, but actually a useful, safe, because it's sandboxed, cross-platform compilation target for lots of languages. Though, of course, at the moment, Rust is the language really driving the effort forward. WASI supplies an API to do systems programming, sockets, file system operations, time, all the things you would think of as systems programming operations. But with all the safety constraints, again, things like sandboxing that are inherent in the WebAssembly programming model. It's still early, but it's possible that this, along with a number of other related efforts, actually represents the beginning of a sea change in the safety and reliability of systems programming, and we desperately need that. If you're interested in hearing more about WASI, I've linked to an episode of the Bike Shed podcast in the show notes. The host, Chris Toomey, talked with Lynn Clark and Till Schneiderite from Mozilla about a bunch of things, but including in the mix, WASI. And as of Rust 1.35, Rust can now target it natively on Nightly. There's a lot missing in the standard library when you're targeting WASI, as you'd expect, given how early on WASI itself is. It's immature enough that everyone is still figuring out the best way for these implementations to work. Still, I find this incredibly cool, and I will be watching it very closely. Now, in terms of language features and library stabilizations, there are, as usual, a handful of nice improvements. The debug macro can now be called with no arguments whatsoever. But what would that even print out, you ask? The file in line where you put it, I say. This is a handy tool to have in the debug printing toolbox. One place I've thought of where you might use this is watching how multi-threaded or asynchronous operations end up interleaving when you're actually running a program. Next up, the expanded debug format, which I always forget about. You type it, open curlies, colon, pound symbol, question mark, close curlies. It's what the debug macro uses now includes a comma after the final struct field. That makes it match the idiomatic output in modern Rust. This is a hilariously tiny change, but I kind of love it. Option got a copied method, which copies an option of a reference to T into an option of T. As you'd expect, for this to work, T here has to implement copy. This is a nice little ergonomics win when it's available, though, because there's no particularly nice way to write it in Rust without this. You'd have to do something like this. Let copied equal some option dot map a closure taking value and having the body let new val equal value and then returning new val. Instead of doing that, you can now just write let copied equals some option dot copied. That's handy. 
As always, of course, you should read the full release notes. There are other pieces that landed here, some of which may be particularly interesting to you. These were just the pieces that were particularly interesting to me. I also want to talk today about the final async and await syntax push, which is not stable in 1.35, but which is in the process of stabilizing now and should be stable on Rust 1.37 if all goes according to plan. The development of the primitives for ergonomic asynchronous code in Rust has been a long, slow path, and that's appropriate in a lot of ways. Getting this right in a way that maps Rust's commitment to zero-cost abstractions and its commitment to usability together onto asynchronous programming has been a very difficult task. And if I'm honest, I still don't really have my head all the way around the features here. It's going to take me some serious digging before I actually do. The gist, though, is this. There is a library, Futures, now stabilizing at standard Futures, which provides a number of types and functions in support of those types for asynchronous programming. Those new types include the eponymous future type, a single value which eventually resolves or doesn't, very much like a promise in JavaScript or a C-sharp task. It includes stream types, which represent a series of values over time. It includes tools for asynchronous I.O. or asynchronous operations, and a lot of depth in all of those. You can and should check out the API docs for details. I've linked that in the show notes. There are also language primitives standardizing how you invoke these in a nice way against nightly rust. That happened over the past several years, and I do mean several years. The earliest phases of this work began back in 2016. For much of that time, the work has been done using macros, an async attribute, which you would put on a function to specify that it had async behavior happening in it, and you would invoke asynchronous functions with an await macro rules style macro, so await exclamation point. However, as the story around the library and the design of its integration into Rust as a core primitive stabilize, it's time to land a dedicated syntax for these. There has been an enormous amount of discussion about this. Frankly, an amount I've found exhausting even as a casual observer. I can't imagine how much work it must have been to keep up with for everyone actually involved in implementing and designing it. Turns out that language syntax provokes strong feelings from people. Who'd have thought, right? Before we even get into that dedicated syntax, you might be wondering, though, why do we need it? We've gotten this far, we've gotten through the whole design period with macros. The basic answer is tooling. Macros can be made to work for this, and reasonably well, but it is difficult to get them to provide good diagnostic feedback when the compiler is working with them. What this means, bluntly, is that the experience of working with async code using those macros always feels second class. You've probably actually run into this yourself if you've used crates which are heavy on macros, especially macros which do code generation. Even when the authors are doing a really good job with the error messages they try to provide, it can be, in fact, nearly always is, harder, sometimes much harder, to figure out why something isn't lining up, which types are wrong, and how they're wrong, for example, than it is when you're not using macros. For a feature that is as core to the future of the language, no pun intended, as async and await are, it's really important that we make these things genuinely first class. So we get dedicated syntax for them. We'll start with async functions. You write them async fn with a normal function signature. And, and this is the important bit to note here, the return time as if it were just a normal non-async function signature. 
So if you have a function which will ultimately resolve as a type which implements the standard future future trait, where its associated output type is a result of an i32 and a string, you would write the signature async function, my neat thing, returning a result of i32 and string, and then the body of the function. Note that we're not referencing future anywhere in that. One reason for this choice is that it's often very difficult, bordering on impossible, to correctly write out the fully resolved type of some complicated chain of futures. Futures are like JavaScript promises in some ways, but Rust's commitment to zero-cost abstractions means the language requires the type system to do a lot more work here, instead of just throwing more memory allocation at it, which is basically how JavaScript handles this problem. Using the async keyword for this transformation means that, as an author, you can see that it's a function which has the special asynchronous future-related handling behavior, and you can see what that future will resolve to without needing to figure out how to write a potentially very complicated chain of types yourself. The other half of this is the await keyword. It looks almost certain to end up in what looks like field access position. That is, if you have some method which returns a future you'll indicate that you're awaiting its result, not immediately chaining it into some new future via some futures combinator or another. You indicate that by writing dot await after the method invocation. So you might have a whole function which looks something like this. Async function neato, returning a result of a vec of i32s or a string. And then the body would be something like let doubled equals get some i32s, which would presumably return a future of a result of vec i32 or string, awaiting the result with that dot await, invoking the question mark operator to early return if this is an error, and then mapping over the vec of i32s, which that function handed back. We then return the collected version of that as our OK variant. And here, we are still returning a future in the end, but... The compiler will be able to give us nice, appropriate feedback about the types along the way, and we don't have to deal with the same kinds of code generation. It's a much smoother experience. I was initially a bit surprised by the choice of dot await instead of await get some i32s, which is what you might expect coming from C Sharp or JavaScript. However, I came around pretty quickly to this because folks pointed out that other languages which use that position are statement-oriented. Rust, instead, builds everything out of expressions. It's one of the things I really love about the language, and it encourages chaining those expressions together with dot syntax. Idiomatic Rust also uses the question mark operator for short-circuiting when there's early errors. It does this a lot. The combination of those two things means you'd very often end up writing something like open parentheses, await some function invocation, close parentheses, question mark, unless there were a special case rule around the combination of await and question mark, and that would both be pretty surprising and, it turns out, also have some strange side effects in terms of other precedence issues. As much as this all initially seemed kind of weird to me, I've already gotten pretty used to it, and I think it makes a lot of sense. It's also worth note that this is far from the only somewhat sophisticated thing that happens in field access position. There's a lot of syntax sugar here. Even method invocation does some pretty fancy things there to get self as the right type. Remember, you can do things like take a box of a mutable reference to self. There's some pretty sophisticated things happening with dot syntax. This is just one more. There's a lot more discussion around this, and I've linked it in the show notes if you feel like digging into all the complicated debate about it. 
It is also, I should note, technically getting finalized in the language meeting that happens today as I release this. So in principle, this might change, but it looks like this is how these features are going to land. In any case, I'm very excited by this. In just a few months, we'll be able to write async await code on stable Rust. And I think that'll be another big leap forward in the places where Rust is both viable and indeed excellent as a choice for writing software. And that's a wrap on this news episode. The next episode will be out on this coming Monday and is a special one. Keep your eyes on your podcast feeds or your ears or whatever it is you put on podcast feeds. Thanks, as always, to this month's $10 or more sponsors. Soren Bramer-Schmidt, Matt Rudder, Arun Kolshrestha, Anthony Deschamps, Olushe Shonaya, Dan Abrams, Nick Gidio, Evan Stahl, Scott Moeller, Embark Studios, Dominic Cooney, Jonathan Knapp, Daniel Mason, Benjamin Manns, Benam Esobode, Jeff May, Nick Stevens, James Higgins II, Nathan Scully, Johan Anderson, Chip, Zach Peters, John Rudnick, Joseph Schrog, Andrew Dirksen, Jerome Froelich, Rafe Levine, Brian Stitt, Brian McAllister, Ryan Osiel, Ryan Osiel, Nicholas Pochet, Michael McDonnell, Jacob Dinar, Jason Bowen, Rob Chuk, Alexander Payne, Adam Green, Martin Huschober, Ramon Buckland, David Carroll, Graham Willadol, Paul Naranja, Peter Tillemans, Daniel Collin, Christian Paul, and Olaf Adeyi. Notes for this episode are available at neurostation.com slash show underscore notes slash news slash rust underscore one underscore 35. Show notes for every episode are there at the website. That always includes links to things I talked about, transcripts for most of the episodes and many of the interviews, and code samples where appropriate. Please do tell others about the show if you like it, whether that's in person, via your podcast directory, or in whatever media you use online, social or otherwise. You can contact me at Chris Kreitcher or at NeuraStation on Twitter, or you can always just send me an email at hello at NeuraStation.com. Until next time, happy coding.